Welcome to the Project 38 podcast, where we explore the state of the market and the future of government contracting. I'm Nick Wakeman, editor of Washington Technology, and joining me today is Ross Wilkers, senior staff writer for WT. We're going to be talking about uh, mergers and acquisitions. So this podcast is part of a series of M&A-related podcasts that we've been doing in March, and today's podcast is brought to you by InfoBase Publishers the provider of the DASIS information service for practitioners of mergers and acquisitions in the aerospace, defense, and government markets. DASIS details companies by operating segment, division, cost center, joint ventures, and equity interests, complete with contracts, programs, and DOD budget line items. InfoBase Publishers delivers the information you need for for the decisions you make. We thank them for their support. So, Ross, welcome. Good to talk with you. So, you know, the two of us have written a lot about mergers and acquisitions. 2020 seems to have been nearly a record-breaking year for the number of of deals. Um, kind of what, what stood out for you from 2020? They're getting larger. They're getting a lot, a lot larger. Yeah. And it's the drivers continue to be macroeconomic. Facts that are there, interest rates continue to be low, debt continues to be cheap. But then, by the same token, if you look at the customer, government customers, and how they're going about, the contracts are getting larger, too, and they're getting more centralized. And so that just raises the bar of how companies not only have to bid, but then execute afterwards. Yeah, I mean, they don't like to talk so much about, oh, we're doing a deal for scale, but I mean, scale really is important, especially if you're going after those huge uh, vehicles where you need you need all that uh, that breadth and, the, and depth. And the task orders afterwards, the task orders are getting oh. into the into the billions with almost no visibility into them beforehand. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, for another but that is episode. one of my pet peeves. That is one of my pet peeves. So any uh, any single deal or single couple deals that uh, jump out at you? I've, I've got my list, but I'll, I'll ask you first. Well, where do you want to start? 2020 or 2021 first? Well, let, let's do quick 2020 and then we'll get into 2021 because I know there's been a lot of activity since January 1 as well. I'm looking at your article, in fact, from 2020, that 109 deals were closed in 2020 for the record by our account. The final score, 55-54, private equity to the strategics. Yeah. So, and when so – we probably should pick a different word than private equity and strategic because everything the private equity firms are doing is strategic, right? It's just they have a different strategy. Everything that's done strategic. Yeah. But all this back to the conversation about money, the private equity funds around the world, not just in the government space, but worldwide, they have been sitting on all this money waiting to be spent for a long time, totaling in the trillions and in this space, the billions, and there's a time horizon that they have to deploy it. So there's a little bit of pressure on these PE funds to use that money to buy assets and build, in theory, the next one 
that comes to the attention of, say, the public company, quote unquote, right. strategic buyer. Yeah, the PE activity was just it really jumped out at, at at me this year looking at the list. I mean, you had and you had companies making, you know, like, you know, Blue Halo, you know, used, just that use them as an example. Um, six deals out of and they really they just kind of formed in 2019. You know, they're backed by arms and capital. So they're you know, they've got the resources behind them. But that's a lot of deals in, in one year. Um, so, yeah, the P.E. activity and then the continuing. And I, I like your point about we probably should come up with a third category because like you have a company like Novetta that I mean, I counted them as, as P.E. because, you know, they're. Uh, Carlisle backed. Carlisle, yeah, I was drawing a blank. But, you know, they've been around for several years now. I mean, probably eight years between uh, two different ownerships, and uh, they're continuing to make deals. So, so yeah, the PE impact, and it does drive, you know, I heard someone say a few years ago that every, every seller in the market should be grateful that there's a lot of PE activity because it does, it does sort of push the valuations up. It supports the creation of middle tier yes. companies because let let's get in the mindset of the it's called the publicly traded buyer. I mean, they want to make an acquisition unless it's a tuck in type deal, and they can clearly articulate that that's their approach to that. Say, just to pick on one company, that's the Booz Allen Hamilton approach. They only do yeah. tuck in acquisitions and that's clearly articulated mantex kind of this same way i mean they've done some significant deals but they look for things that are easy to integrate into their own enterprise whereas a lot of the other ones let's say caci they're not afraid to write the big fat check are they for (laughs) yeah some of them yeah they and you know and they made uh they made a good deal last year. They kind of built more on their their product business. And yeah, looking at the other kind of traditional strategics, I mean, SAIC, of course, with Unisys, that was probably the the, the biggest example. But then you had, uh, yeah, you mentioned Mantech. They made a couple of deals. Jacobs made deals. Uh, I never never sure what they, whether they want to be called ASGN or ECS Federal, but they made. Uh, several deals. And of course, Lidos made that deal with Dynetics. That was a big, you know, another one of those billion dollar deals last year. And KBR acquired Centauri. You take right. a look four years ago with KBR, they weren't on the top 100 whatsoever. Now yeah. they're what? They're a ranked company to use yeah. the college sports analogy. They're easily in the top 25 and we'll see where they come in in the next ranking. Yeah, I, I think I think like companies like KBR, I mean, Jacobs has been around for a while, but you see some of these companies you don't think of as, you know, the services type companies, these these A and E integrators, what, what are the architecture engineering or making these deals? I mean, you've written about several of those. I mean, I know KBR was one. You see what, uh, um, of course, AECOM spun out Admentum, but uh, which is, was a huge deal. That's a large private equity-backed company now. Tetra Tech has acquired IT systems integrators. Yeah. Parsons, look at what they've done yeah. to completely change that company. Then now, it, it, with Parsons, they went public two years ago through an IPO, so it brings it, it that strategy into a different 
lens that you look at it through because they're publicly traded. But they've been changing that company and creating a new identity for themselves years before they even filed the paperwork to go public. Yeah. What do you see driving companies like that to make these kinds of deals? The promise of all of this money in their core markets still being there when it comes to the government budget environment. Case in point, the billion dollar tech modernization package that got passed, I think, last week. Yeah. Through through that. And so the companies and and this applies to both the public companies and the privately held firms that have a different set of investors, but everybody is an investor and your investors have to be aligned with the companies, whether they're, whether it's public, private equity, employee ownership or whatnot, everybody's got to be aligned on that. And the way the companies are attempting to articulate where they are today, that they're different and the market is a little bit different than perhaps the last time there was a downturn that you covered in depth in the days of sequestration and the downturn and what happened there. So they're articulating that their positioning is, say, different than where they may have been eight, nine years ago. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. I mean, a lot of, you know, almost across the board, every executive I've talked to mentions trying to get into those parts of the market that they know that they feel are going to be protected if there is a you know another another round of uh, budget constraints or budget uh, I don't know what the right term is it uh, pressure pressure yeah there will be look the the tap water doesn't run at full flow all the time right, right? I mean eventually <laughs> there's going there will always be some kind of lid on federal spending, at least, you know, when I look at that, at my age, I look at the deficit and go, gee, somebody's got to pay for that. Right. So that, I mean, that's on everybody's mind. That said, our agency's not going to move to cloud computing environment. Our agency's not going to buy IT. I don't think so. Yeah. The argument is is that they have to do that in order to save money. You know, that, that, they, and be more efficient, especially if they're going to shrink and uh, the contractor spend will shrink. But, uh, but anyway, so let's shift a little bit to 2021. Been a lot of uh, deals there. Oh, so yeah. before we, just to put a uh, ball on the conversation about sure. 2020, the two most recent episodes of this, you sat down with, oh. sat down virtually, virtually, everybody, with the CEOs of Blue Halo, who you mentioned earlier and what they've been building under the umbrella of Arlington Capital and the head of SEIC's defense business and how they've tried to bring Unisys Federal into the fold and maybe perhaps become more of what they acquired there. So takeaways from those conversations and particularly with SAIC Unisys Federal, was it worth it? Yeah, they they make the argument it was. I mean, they they've won several things. They I think they're and especially the look continuing to look ahead at at the transformation spending and the that whole you know shift to the cloud and managed services in a more commercial way. I think it really 
they see it as position them at, to be able to compete for those things. Blue Halo, I think that this year, you know, he did say that he could see them doing another six deals this year, but I have a feeling that, you know, they'll probably make a few more, but they have to start working on how to put those pieces together. And, you know, I think their, their vision or their look at sort of, uh, enabling like the transformation of modern warfare. So they're really focused on, you know, space, uh, you know, cyber, uh, directed energy, th- those kinds of things. Um, it's similar in a way to what Arlington Capital did with uh, Polaris Alpha, you know, bringing a lot of things together for this kind of cutting edge area. Um, so we'll see. I mean, he, he did joke that they've already getting approached by people that want to buy them, but that it's uh, it's too early. But I can see them maybe two, three years, you know, another half dozen deals. They, they, they'll be a formidable company in that space I, SSC thought it was, Unisys, I think they're going to be making some more deals soon especially in healthcare that's kind of where they see that they're you know underserving the market i thought it was pretty telling how open jonathan moneymaker the ceo of blue halo was yeah here, where he basically the message to the employees is like look there is an exit strategy here it's private equity backed that said they're probably thinking about how to do that very carefully and how to sell how to sell that to the employees when that time comes. And we've had right. CEOs at our M&A focused events representing the seller and and speak to that element of it. It's like when it when it's time for them to join forces with a larger entity, how do you get the employees to feel comfortable with that next phase? And so give it two or three years, that will be something on Blue Halo's agenda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It'll be interesting what they do. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of IPOs in this past year, more so than I think we've ever seen in the market. Uh, so who knows what the exit will look like? So, but speaking of IPOs, I mean, what uh, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I know we saw what, what PAE did with with being acquired by a SPAC, and now they're publicly traded, and then. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of things going on there. So yeah, so Parsons really broke the duck of IPOs that matter to the government market yeah, back in 2019 when they went through their IPO process because you'd have to go all the way back to Booz Allen Hamilton in 2010 to find the last real true IPO that mattered yeah. in the government market. Not counting spinoffs and divestitures and you know carve outs to create a new publicly traded entity. That's in a separate category. So perspective doesn't really qualify as an IPO, but it is a listing and was an introduction of a new public company into the sphere. But you then you go back after Parsons, you've had PAE in the spring of twenty nine of twenty twenty, excuse me doing their direct listing and eventually they'll have a new shareholder base once they get through the churn that's in the SPAC, at least is the way I understand it. And then you fast forward to later in the year into this year, and then you've got Telos, boom, doing their IPO and a cybersecurity company that primarily works for the government contracts, but has a very commercial like identity 
to them. And then more recently, you have Leonardo DRS doing a an IPO. It's sort of different in the way that they're using the proceeds, and it's basically a cash call for the parent company that's headquartered in Italy. But regardless of that, we've had three new publicly traded government contractors join within the past 12 months. Yeah, I think, and I think that's significant. I think it really will show – it will give people another gauge on what companies are worth because you can follow – you know, so now you have a larger pool of public companies getting valued each day. Um, yeah, the, the the DRS one I do think is interesting just because they're doing it to get they need the cash, and so instead of selling it off, they create the this parent, IPO. And the the parent. parent needs the cash. Yes, right? I mean yeah. DRS. I, I, despite the reputation of my byline, which seems to be, I can't figure out the conversion of euros to dollars <laughs> and everything that's going on with the parent, but. The rough math and looking at it tells me that DRS has essentially become the profitability machine for yeah. Leonardo, the parent, especially because despite the challenges of operating in the pandemic, the U.S. defense industry has made out relatively all right since COVID. Part of that is because they had to do that. And yeah. To the Pentagon's credit, they did their best to inject more cash into the system with early awards. So there is more money falling in the system thanks to the customer. But still, I mean, come the end of March, DRS is going to trade on the New York Stock Exchange and public investors will have a chance to buy somewhere between 20 and 25 percent. Yeah. Is going to be made available yeah. to the company. In, in a way, it sort of reminded me of, of a different that Leonardo took a. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think how to put these two together. So when Unisys sold off Unisys Federal, that was their version of that cash call. They needed that. It was basically their most profitable, most successful segment. But they sold that off to get the proceeds to. Uh, to kind of fuel the, with they their their strategy and Leonardo has kind of stopped short of that. They they're doing it a different way, but they're going to still can retain, you know, 70, 75 percent control over DRS. So, but there's still it's that cash that they were after. Leonardo has been very clear on what their intentions for DRS have been so far. They've the U.S. market and particularly the defense market is very important to them. And if you look at what's happened in the global economy for the past 12 months, you, you can see why yeah. they're coming at it from that point of view. Yeah. And it also gives them, I would think, a way to continue to, you know, a year from now, two years from now, they could sell off some more shares and kind of have a source of cash if they needed it, I would guess. That, so. that could happen. That yeah. could happen. I mean, no one really knows what it's going to look like 12 bonds from now. Right. Except for if you buy stock in DRS through this IPO, no dividends. Sorry. <laughs> but they've told you that. So yeah. consider it. Yeah. So uh, 2021, you mentioned briefly perspective. We, we have to talk about that amazing transformation that per- Paraton is going to go through from 
first they announced the deal to buy Northrop Grumman's IT business, and then shortly thereafter, they're going to take over Perspective and go from being a billion-dollar company to a seven-billion-dollar company. Uh, it still kind of blows my mind that that uh, you know they've already closed the Northrop piece, so they're integrating that, and I guess preparing the infrastructure to take on uh, Perspective. But that that's just huge. That's just an amazing. Right when I think there can't be any more of these big deals, they keep coming. So. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Veritas has this huge fund yeah. that with money that they're looking to spend, and they're creating the next big government IT contractor in an era where the other government IT contractors say, you got to be big Yeah. to a certain extent. And nobody's told me the magic number of what a government IT company should be, but I I still remember the days when analysts and bankers were saying five billions the limit for yeah. annual revenue of government IT and services companies. Nobody's gonna do more than that because it just gets too complicated. Now it seems to be a race to twenty billion. Yeah. And I remember people saying when they first started talking about a billion being the uh, middle tier that that the middle tier is like 200 to a billion and to me you know that's still uh that's still pretty significant but uh you know with with this new paraton that's when i feel like has to be headed to an ipo eventually so like who who would buy it i mean <laughs> here are their <laughs> options right when they get to that investment the end of that the lifespan of that investment because if you're a private equity company you know eventually you will want to exit and cash out and so at that point with a business that size these are your two options you either sell to another private equity firm that has experience in the government market because inexperienced private equity firms likely are not going to write that check right for it or you go public, whether that be an initial public offering or, say, a direct listing in the same way that PAE actually did that through the blank check company. And Palantir, I know that's not, it may not be an apples to apples in the government market, but Palantir is somebody that the government market pays attention to. They did a direct listing. They didn't use book runners or essentially rely on um institutional investment firms to market their shares. So the aperture definitely is open for Paraton three to five years from now. And it creates that optionality of do they want to bring to market the next great publicly traded government contracting company. And a few months ago, Veritas Capital's CEO actually went on CNBC and did an interview with one of our colleagues up there that covers defense and space and he was clear he clearly articulated yeah taking public taking companies public is something that we would like to do but there are intrinsic challenges in taking a government technology company public because there's not a lot that they can explain that's the that's probably barrier number one barrier number two is that the market in itself is still somewhat difficult to explain yeah 
to a general investor base. But it is maturing, and and with these large cap, these companies becoming larger capitalized. If you're a general interest investor, it's getting to the point where you have to pay attention to the defense space. You have to pay attention to the government service space, just because these companies are getting to that size. Yeah, and you, you figure too that the it's got to be easier to tell a story now than it was. 10 years ago, when you look at the size of Lidos, you look at the size of CACI and SAIC. I mean, there's some large publicly traded companies. So, yeah, Lidos is uh, listed on the S&P 500 right. index, which that makes them a blue sort kind of. of a blue chip yeah. company. And then you look at the defense hardware companies, like seven or eight that are on the S&P, which is the bellwether index that investors use to see how the stock market is going. So the general investor is paying attention. Yeah. It has to. So Ross, just as we wrap up, any predictions for the rest of the year? You think um what do you think will happen in the MA space? I'm looking at the third letter in M&A, which is M&A followed by D, D meaning <laughs> divestitures and what potential carve-outs may be on the yeah. market as those holders continue on their path of you know, reinvention and holding on to their course. So L3 Harris, for example, has been an active seller since they completed their merger and they still have a little they're mostly done with their divestiture agenda but they still have a little bit to go and lidos was glad to help them with the security right product business but yeah i mean those are you know there's competition for that and you know if you look at some of the customers and the markets that some of these assets are positioned in i mean just look at what AT&T did in selling their defense IT professional services business yeah. to Arlington Capital. That doesn't check the box of a publicly traded, quote unquote, strategic buyer, although that's a misnomer. As we've come to realize in this discussion, <laughs> right, but it checks every other box, private equity looking for an asset, got AT&T you know, honing more to their core as a as a company, you know, they're still very much in the government market, but all their core businesses looks like it's going to be centered around their network, for instance. Yeah. But there's a lot of other there's a lot of other companies out there that I think are like AT&T and L3 Harris in the product world that are going, hmm, they got that. You know, let's let's see what we can get by offering this asset to the market. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what what happens with that business because it has some good contracts. I think it has Alliance and some of these other large IDIQs, and you would think that now they'll get some more attention that they're not because they weren't part of the core of what AT and T was trying to do in the in the federal space. The corporation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, AT and T. They still have the first net network, which is core to their public sector yes. and their commercial 5G push. They still have the EIS government-wide telco contract. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, AT&T is going to be around when I'm dead. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so they're still watching 
still watching I think them. This, I think this professional services business, I would look for them to sort of, you know, clean their stuff up, build some infrastructure, um, perhaps make another deal or two. But then I think two years from now, that'll be it'll be ready for someone. Someone's going to want to buy them. And, and Arlington Capital is building that business. We forgot yes. to mention company's name, Tito Athene. That ironically was a carve out of black box from two years ago. And so Arlington Capital is clearly building some kind of telecom connectivity services yeah. business with their their backing. So they're one to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Your trends. My trends. I think we'll see. I don't know if we'll see one hundred and nine deals, but. I bet you we'll see somewhere in the 80 to 100 range because I think there's just two. I think you see people position themselves for for that that budget uh, constriction. And I do think there's a lot of opportunities that people are going to try to be trying to chase, whether it's this, uh, you know, this transformation fund, whether it's you, know, you have health care. Um, we haven't seen much come out yet around the. Uh, the climate change agenda, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities there. So you can see companies buying things to position themselves there. So uh, we'll have plenty to write about, without a doubt. All right. Well, that's about all we have time for, Ross. So thank you. And I want to thank our sponsor. So today's podcast is brought to you by InfoBase Publishers, the provider of the DASIS information service for practic- practitioners of mergers and acquisitions in the aerospace, defense, and government markets. DASIS details companies by operating segment, division, cost center, joint ventures, and equity interests, complete with contracts, programs, and DOD budget line items. InfoBase Publishers delivers the information you need for for the decisions you make. We thank them for their support. And thank you all for listening. I'm Nick Wakeman, editor of Washington Technology. You can find our archive of past podcasts at our website, WashingtonTechnology.com, and on iTunes and Google Play. Thanks again, and stay safe.